Yes, good morning. I, I uh, find weekend meetings to be just a little weird because I can't tell whether today is if we're at the middle of the meeting or if this is the last day of the meeting, and it's kind of both, and it's just, you know, whether you, how you want to view it, I suppose. This morning's lesson, I'm going to use the entirety of the time, and it's, it's, a, uh, it's more challenging for me because it, it's, it flows different than most lessons that I do, and it has a little bit more complexity, uh, and it wasn't my idea. Uh, some time ago, uh, last year, I was contacted and asked to do a lecture uh, down in Florida and was given this subject, Relief for the Afflicted, Comfort Worthy of the Gospel. And I thought that was a pretty good title. It's based on uh, the Macedonian letters, and so you're looking at Philippians or First and Second Thessalonians, and in my case, the passages are from First Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 10, and then Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 3 through 10. And I thought it was okay. And then I saw the limitations. And I realized I would have taken any other subject that they were handing out other than mine. I got the worst one. Because I'm supposed to talk about relief of the afflicted, comfort worthy of the gospel, but I wasn't allowed to talk about the resurrection or heaven or basically hope. And I looked at my passages... Second, First Thessalonians five verses one through ten, and guess what's in there? And Second Thessalonians chapter one verses three through ten, and it's in there too. I'm like, wait, so I can't even cover my own passages? Yeah. Well, that's because another person was going to be covering the subject of resurrection and heaven and hope, and that was that was worthy of its own time. So I started getting ready for the, this, this and, and I've spent more time on this lesson than I believe any other lesson that I've ever prepared. A lot of work, a lot of effort, a lot of study. But it seemed a little weird because I don't feel afflicted. It seemed weird for me to be presenting this message. I'm not the one who's persecuted. And I, I went to and, and presented in a Bible class. And I asked, and I'll ask you guys, I'll ask you to raise your hands. How many of you feel right now that you are persecuted? I've had one person raise their hands when I've asked that. He's a scientist. And within his realm, he feels a great deal of pressure to not believe in God. But I have a follow-up question. Given the state of our country, the direction of the government the moral direction, how many of you feel that persecution may very well be coming our direction? And that is the response I've gotten every time. We see it coming. And one of the most foolish things for us to do is to see affliction coming and not prepare. In Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 25, that passage that talks about the importance of the assembly, it says, do not forsake the assembling together as it's a habit of some, but encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. In the book of Hebrews, the day drawing near, I don't see it as being the day of judgment. We don't see that. We don't know when that's coming. But in the book of Hebrews, he's talking about persecution they had faced. And then he says in chapter 12 and verse 4, you haven't yet suffered to the point of shedding blood. In other words, it's going to get worse, it's going to get harder, get ready. 
And now then the assembly is not just about, well, this is what we've been told to do and we're all supposed to just on the first day of the week get together because that's what's been commanded. It's about us gathering together and getting ourselves and our children ready to make a stand when it is hard to stand and making our assemblies purposeful. And so the first thing I just want you to understand and and get from this is that you need to be getting ready getting ready for the potential that you might not be able to work. You may not be able to keep your job if you hold to the faith that we find within the scriptures. Get ready for the possibility that the government may come and try to shut us down if we hold to the faith that we find within the scriptures. Get ready for it to be painful and difficult and to be strong and prepared. Well, we're talking about relief for the afflicted. That comes from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 7. It says, to give relief to you who are afflicted. And the word afflicted, what that means, uh, literally it means to be pressed together. And the picture that I get is to be squeezed. It's talking about the inner turmoil that comes from outer pressure. So persecution is outside of us. It's what the world is doing to us. It's what others want to do to us. But affliction means it's working. We feel it inside. We feel the pressure. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 5 when he talks about his affliction, his persecution in the Macedonian area, he talks about conflicts without persecution, fears within that's affliction. And we want to find some solution, some comfort, some relief for that inner pressure. Well, the Thessalonians are a good place to turn for this. And to understand, we just want to do a real quick review of their circumstances. And I believe it's helpful to compare it to Philippi. Paul's on his second missionary journey, and he first goes to Philippi, and then he's going to go to Thessalonica after that. And in Acts chapter 16, it describes his time in Philippi. And he comes and he preaches the message, and it's going well. There are some people who are believing. But then there's this demon-possessed girl, and Paul casts out the demon, and it causes problems because people were making money off of this girl. And so now they're jealous, and they cause this uproar, and they come after Paul, and they strip him of his clothes. They beat him with many blows from the rod. They throw him into prison, and that's where we find him at midnight singing praises to God right? And that's when the Philippian jailer is going to be converted. He's going to go from Philippi and he's going to go to Thessalonica and it's going to look almost exactly the same where he's going to start preaching the message and people are going to hear it and there's going to be people becoming Christians and then there's going to be people that get jealous and they're going to make almost the exact same accusation and they cause a mob and they come in to try to get Paul and that's where things change. Paul's not home. And now the persecutors, instead of attacking Paul, go after the church. These are people that had not been Christians, but maybe for three weeks. And now persecutors have come and are bringing them before the courts. And there's another difference that occurs because what happens after that when Paul's in Philippi and he's in prison? Overnight they come to realize, wait a second, he's a Roman citizen. And we don't have the right to do the things that we've done. And so what they do is they beg Paul to leave the city. 
And they beg Paul. They don't want anything to do with this scenario. They want to sweep it under the rug and pretend it never occurred. They want nothing to do with it. But in Thessalonica, when Paul escapes and he goes to Berea, instead of wanting nothing to do with it, they rise up and say, we will put an end to this. And so the, the persecutors from Thessalonica then chase Paul to Berea. And they stir up a crowd in Berea, and now they're still after Paul. But you know what Paul does? He escapes again, and this time he goes too far away. What do those zealous persecutors do next? They go home. They go back to Thessalonica, and now they're the neighbors, the fellow citizens of these new Christians now living side by side with people that are bent on stopping Christianity. It makes sense that Paul would write to the Thessalonians about affliction. It wasn't Paul, the one who was suffering in Thessalonica. It was the Christians. They knew the pressure. They knew the pain. They needed the relief. So, when we look at the letter, we find this is one of the major topics within there. Uh, it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, when it talks about the Macedonians, that's where the Thessalonica church is, that they believed in a great ordeal of affliction. He says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 6 that they received the word in much tribulation. In uh, chapter 2, verses 14 through 15, he talks about you also endured the same sufferings at the hand of your own countrymen in comparison to what was going on in Jerusalem, right, with the uh, crucifixion of Jesus as well as the persecution and the murder of uh, Stephen. And then it says in chapter 1 and verse 4 of 2 Thessalonians, it says, in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. And then in verse 6 and 7, it says, for after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted. They understood the pressure, the squeeze, and they're seeking for comfort. What I find important for us to know is their response. What's going to happen when it gets hard? You know what I really like? I, I have begun this lesson in multiple places. Ask the question, how many of you feel that persecution is about to begin, that it is coming our direction? And every single time I've had almost everyone in the audience raise their hand, and you know what? We're still here. And that's encouraging to me. We see it coming, but we haven't quit. What about the Thessalonians where it's not hypothetical? They're not seeing it off in the future. They are feeling it then. They are experiencing it. You know what it says in 2 Thessalonians 1 and verse 3? It says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged, and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. And then we find that they are persevering. So what the point is, is that they didn't survive. They thrived. Persecution does not stop Christianity. It doesn't even slow it down. It makes Christians stronger, bolder. It doesn't have to stop us. We can grow in every sense. We can grow in the midst of persecution. We can grow personally, individually, spiritually. And we can even grow in numbers as well. 
All right, so let's define the terms really quickly, comfort and relief. And we need to define them, especially comfort, because I don't think comfort is what we normally think of. I think of comfort like a comfortable chair. You know, it's one where you just kind of sit in and you sink in and then you don't ever want to get up again and it feels really good. And that's kind of a mistake. We're told in 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 18, after dealing with somebody who's lost a loved one, you know, that, that very end of the, it says, therefore, comfort one another with these words. It's not make everybody feel good. That's not, that's not what comfort is. The, the word comfort, and in, it, in its Greek, it, it literally means to call to one side. And the picture that I get from it is a football player who gets hurt on the field They've hurt their leg. They fall down and they realize they can't get off. And you've seen them. I'm sure if you've watched the games, you've seen it where they look to the side and they go like this. That's calling for comfort. Call to one side. And so somebody comes over. Maybe it's a player or maybe it's one of the, the, um, the medics. But they come over and you know what? They, they don't fix it. They don't come over and suddenly say, tap now. Your leg's better. No, we're talking about football, not soccer. So that was hilarious. <laughs> Okay, so we come over here, we pick them up, we put them on our shoulders side by side. They've been called to their side, and what you've done is you haven't taken away the pain, but you've given them in the pain the ability to move forward. That's comfort. It's the ability to move forward in the midst of our pain. And so somebody has lost a loved one, and, and the pain is real, but we can live to see another day by the strength we gain from one another and the truth of the gospel. And so that's a major theme in the book of 1 Thessalonians. You can't always necessarily see it because they don't translate the word exactly the same, but 10 times in these two short letters, this word comfort shows up. Paul is telling them, you guys need to grab each other around the shoulder and work your way forward. Comfort one another. And, and the word relief... The word relief that we're going to see in 2 Thessalonians, best description I've seen for that is with a, 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 like a bow and arrow. And you take that bow and you take the string and you pull it back, 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 back. And it's getting so tight that it's just going to snap. But you let it go and it gets back to this easy place where it is no longer being stretched. That's relief. To have gone from a place where we're stretched to the point of breaking to now we're relaxed and no longer being tugged and pulled on. So we're looking for relief for the afflicted, comfort that's worthy of the gospel. Where are we going to find that? So I look at 1 Thessalonians and I look at 2 Thessalonians and I find a few answers. And you want to know what the number one answer I find? Well, it's the resurrection. It's the one thing I'm not allowed to talk about. 1 Thessalonians, every chapter in 1 Thessalonians, it's the only book with any size, any chapters to it, that every single chapter makes reference to the return of Christ. It is absolutely a theme and a focus, and it is a source of our comfort and our relief. And here I've been given an assignment, and I'm not allowed to talk about what's the answer. And I'm so thankful that's the case, because Paul didn't stop there. And neither should we. If we're going to face affliction, the more tools we have to respond and to endure, the better off we are. So if you look over at 2 Thessalonians, I find additional answers. There's really one. 
There's really one big one that I want to focus on for the rest of our time this morning in a second. But there are additional ones. And so like in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, I find the comfort of appreciation in verse 3. Uh, verse 4 actually. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecution and afflictions which you endure. Don't you think that helped them? That gave them a little bit of strength to know that everywhere Paul goes, he talks about us. And he talks about how strong we are. And he talks about our courage and our faith and our growth. And it meant that what they were going through was not unnoticed. It was appreciated. I know on the day of judgment, we want to hear, we want to go before God and we want to hear him say, enter in to the joy of your master. I want to hear those words, but isn't there some value? Isn't there tremendous value in the first two words? Just this, well done. To know that God has seen and appreciated what we've done. Good job. There's strength. There's comfort. There's relief that comes in just that idea. Now we go just a little, a little bit further. Go down to verse 5. It says, For this is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment, so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which indeed you are suffering. And so the second thing I see in here that it gives us additional comfort is purpose. They're suffering for a reason. He says, for which indeed you are suffering. You are suffering for the kingdom of God. One of the things that we have learned in battle is that the key to victory in war is not necessarily having the better weaponry. And it's not necessarily about better, having the bigger army. The soldiers who believe in the cause are nearly impossible to defeat. If we suffer for a reason that we believe in, well, those soldiers, they will fight and they will fight and they will fight. And they will sacrifice their own lives because they know it's worth it. It's for their family. It's for their country. It's for something that matters. But when they don't know, they don't care, they don't believe in it, they won't stick their head up when somebody is shooting. They won't advance when they're told to advance. They won't take the risks because it's not worth it. But when we believe there's a cause that matters, we will fight to the very end. And they were suffering for the purpose of the kingdom. We stand up for God. We stand up for his truth, for his purpose, for his kingdom. And if that's a cause you believe in, you will endure. You will overcome persecution. In that same verse, if you look, he said in verse 5, this is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. And that's a little bit challenging for us to accept, but here's another part of it that, that gives us courage and strength and relief and comfort is worthiness. Now, you're never going to be worthy. You're never going to deserve heaven. But you can live in such a way that you really do belong there. You fit in there. I think especially about Paul. I don't know what Paul was born like. Paul might have been handsome and cute, but he wasn't that way when he died. 
Because Paul goes through horrendous persecution over and over again. How many times have they beaten him? How many times have they flogged him? How many times have they, well, they stoned him once. They throw rocks at him until they think he is dead. I don't think Paul ever looked all that great after that. And he talks about it in Galatians, the very end of the book of Galatians. He talks about how he bears on his body the brand marks of Christ. And that makes him ugly. Except for in heaven, those marks make you beautiful. Those marks show the value you've put on God. Those marks make you fit in, worthy. And he's saying about these Christians, he's saying when you suffer, when you suffer for Christ, you show that you're worthy of the kingdom. I haven't earned it, but you belong. But no, those aren't the answers. Oh, there's that, and there's actually more in there. But there's one thing that Paul sticks at, that really emphasizes, brings out, and it's not the answer we would normally think of. And it's what I consider to be the most challenging part of this and why I then adored and loved this subject I was given because it challenged me to think about God differently. And the answer is the comfort and relief that comes from judgment. And that's not the way we think. But you look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 13 through 18 of chapter 4, it is somebody has died. Here we're going to comfort one another with the comfort of resurrection, the comfort of Jesus returning. He's going to say the same thing in chapter 5, verse 11. It gets, you don't see it necessarily in your translations, but therefore encourage one another. Exact same wording as chapter 4 and verse 18. Therefore comfort one another. Exact same wording. But what changed, well, he started in verse 1. He says, now as to the times and the epics, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. He turns towards judgment. And yes, there's still going to be talk of, of resurrection, and there's still talk of hope, but he turned his attention towards judgment and then says, comfort one another with these words. And if it's a little harder to see in 1 Thessalonians 5, it becomes impossible to ignore when you get to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. So let's look over at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, starting in verse 3 again. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged, and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of your, all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. What's the relief for the afflicted? 
It's judgment. And that's not where we think of comfort coming from. That's not where we think of judgment, uh, of, of, of relief. That's contrary to our way of thinking. Most Christians I know are terrified of judgment. Many of them are ashamed of judgment. We don't want to talk to other people about judgment. We might scare them away from Christianity. Many of them see judgment as simply being unchristian. We are a people of love and mercy, not judgment. And yet, relief for the afflicted is judgment. Something went wrong. Somewhere in this process, and I don't want you to get the wrong idea, we are a people of love and mercy, but judgment is not our enemy. And judgment is not bad. And we better change our minds about that because of what we learn about judgment and God. I want you to think about Jesus. Now, Jesus is the ultimate of love and mercy and forgiveness and patience. Jesus is the one who will die on the cross for our sins to save us from judgment. But Jesus says something incredibly shocking in Luke chapter 12. In Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 41, Jesus is going to start talking about judgment. So as Peter said, Lord, are you addressing this parable to us or to everyone else as well? And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and sensible steward when his master will put whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time. Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that slave says in his heart, my master will be a long time in coming and begins to beat the slaves, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect and in an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. And that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will will receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of flogging will receive but a few. From everyone who has been given much, much will be, will be required and to whom they entrusted much, of him they will ask all the more. So Jesus has started talking about judgment. I have come to cast fire upon the earth. And how I wish it were already kindled. Is that your picture of Jesus? If we do not have a picture of Jesus who looks at judgment, looks at the fire, and wants it to happen, then we do not have a complete picture of Jesus. In the Old Testament, when God is given an opportunity to reveal himself to Moses, Moses has asked to see God. And God has told him, that won't work. My glory and my might is too great. No man can see me and can live. 
But he puts Moses in a situation where he can kind of see a shadow of God, just the after effects of God. And God is passing by. And as he's doing that, instead of, instead of giving Moses the ability to visibly see him, he gives Moses the knowledge of him, the nature of God. And so it says in, in Exodus 34 and verse 6, Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding and loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. When God wants to be known, he wants to be known for his mercy, his forgiveness, his patience, and his judgment. Not separate things. Same God. And so we see in Romans uh, chapter 11 and, uh, and verse 32. I think that says 32. Romans chapter 11. I'll turn over there really quickly so I get the right verse. 22. Behold then the kindness and severity of God. Is our God kind? Yes. Is he severe? Yes, he is both. And if we don't have that concept, if we don't have both, we don't know God. We must find the balance. And so I want to think about this moment of judgment in the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 14, this is at the crossing of the Red Sea. And the picture... It's frankly gruesome. And the response may be surprising. We know in chapter 15, it's the great song. It says in, in verse 1, Then Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord and said, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will extol him. And they're praising God, right? Under what context? They have passed over the Red Sea over dry land, being chased by the Egyptian army. They get to the other side, and then God brings the water crashing down on the Egyptians. And it says in verse 30 of chapter 14, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. A shore of bodies. And they sing to God. That event is a tragedy. It's an absolute tragedy. How many families were just destroyed? Mothers who will not see their son again. Wives who will not see their husband. Children who will not see their parents. The crossing of the Red Sea is a tragedy for Egypt. But it is a victory for God's people. And it was crucial that they get to see the bodies because, well, they probably hadn't seen as many movies as I have. But I've seen enough movies to know if somebody dies off screen, they're not dead. They're coming back. 
It was important for them to see they are really defeated. They're not swimming to the shore. They're not okay. They're not going to regroup. They're not going to chase us. They have been conquered. And so they sing praises to God. And look what they say in verse 13 of chapter 15. In your loving kindness, you have led the people whom you have redeemed. In your strength, you have guided them to your holy habitation. They see a shore of dead bodies and see the loving kindness of God. That's because that shore is filled with people who had been persecuting them, oppressing them had been doing everything they could to keep the people of Israel from thriving. They had been killing their children. And the judgment of God was not against God's people. It was for them. They had been stretched by the Egyptians and no more. They had been given relief. You never have to look over your shoulder again. They're not coming. They're never coming for you again because God gave you the victory through judgment. Somehow we need to find the better balance. In Matthew chapter 23, remember where Jesus talks about the weightier matters of the law? And he gives us three things, three things that we should really focus on in this case. And he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and come in and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Justice and mercy side by side. They are not opposites. They are not enemies. We've got to find the balance. If we want to know God and love God and be like God, we've got to find a balance that craves mercy and justice. And I'm not going to tell you that I have found that balance. I understand not wanting judgment. We think about the people, not the Egyptians on the shore, but we think about family members and loved ones, and we don't want the judgment of God for them. I get, I get that. But we need to find a better balance. So, if you look at the first and second Thessalonians, here's another theme. Yes, it was resurrection. But judgment was also a theme throughout these letters. In uh, chapter 2 and verse 16 of 1 Thessalonians, he talks about how they always are filling up their full measure of the cup. And what he's talking about is God will allow a certain amount of wickedness before he takes action. He's going to do something eventually, but they kept filling up their cup to the point where God's going to take action, but they filled it up and it was constantly overflowing. God's judgment is coming for them. In, in chapter 4 and verse 6, it's actually talking about marriage, people that are afflicting marriage through adultery, and yet what is God going to do? God is the avenger. He will judge such people. In chapter 5 and verse 3, destruction is coming and they will not escape. In 2 Thessalonians 1 and verse 6, he's going to repay with affliction those who afflict you. In chapter 1, verses 7 through 8, he's going to give them retribution, the avenging of their wrongdoing. And chapter 1 and verse 9, the destruction away from the presence of the Lord, the ultimate penalty. Judgment is the source, one source of their comfort and their relief. Well, in chapter 5, we saw that they weren't going to see it coming. And we saw something else in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And this is an important thing. 
2 Thessalonians 1 and verse 5, it says, This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment. So that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just. The judgment of God is right, and it is fair. It is righteous, and it is just. It is right, and it is fair. And it is our gift. I told you that I don't want judgment. That's not true. I need it. And I crave it. And affliction is not a uniquely Christian thing. We're not the only ones who feel squeezed. The world is afflicted. The world feels squeezed. There's so much violence. People are scared to go to the bank, scared to go to movie theaters, scared to go to amusement parks, scared to go to sporting events, so scared to send their kids to school. The world feels afflicted. And what we have is what they need. We have an answer they do not have. We have an answer they need, they want, and they hate all at the same time. You see, the world has embraced wickedness. They have embraced selfishness. They have embraced darkness. They have embraced going against God's will, wanting to live their life their way, do what they want to do, but they didn't fully grasp how far some people would take that. They didn't grasp the depth that the world was going to go to. They wanted to just live in a little bit of pleasure. They didn't realize that some would live and crave the violence and the pain and the agony and the chaos that they could bring. In the last year since I started doing this lesson, I just started paying attention to the things that were happening. And it is just horrendous and painful. How many shootings? I read one in, in Chicago where a young man executed six people. You understand executed with a gun? That's where you put a gun right up against their head and you pull the trigger and he did it to a teenage girl and her infant. He put the gun against an infant and pulled the trigger. I read about a man who, in another country, it's not just the United States, a man who climbed a fence with a machete into a daycare and attacked the kids. And I can't even think to describe that. And you have not escaped it, have you? You had somebody go into one of your schools and thought the thing to do was to shoot the teachers and shoot the kids. And the world is in uproar. What do we do? And they go, they're looking for an answer, and so maybe the answer is laws. We'll, we'll ban guns. We'll ban machetes. We'll ban whatever. And, and I don't want to tell you don't do that. I'm not getting into the politics of it, but I will tell you this, and it's unfortunate. It won't work. 
because the wicked people don't care about your rules. And we've seen people say, well, we're going we're to show the world that we care about this. So we go out in the streets and we protest and it turns to riots and we're acting out and we're unleashing what's inside us. And I get it. I'm not happy either. But you know what? That won't work either. All you've done is you've shown them this hurt me to the people that want to hurt you. You've just shown them what to do. It won't work. The world has a problem and no answer. And we have the answer. There's nothing you can do in this world to punish someone who feels like killing three, six, twelve kids. Taking their life is not justice. It's not even. Their life was not worth those 12 kids. We cannot do that. And what's even worse is that many of these people that go in and shoot up the schools and shoot up other people don't want to live. You're not punishing them when you kill them. You're giving them what they want. They go in with a plan. I'm going to die today, but I'm going to cause as much mayhem and chaos and wickedness as I can. There's no way in this world to get justice. No way for things to be fair and right, and I crave it. I crave the justice. I crave it to be right. I crave for good to conquer evil, and that's what we have. A message from God saying, I will relieve you. I will make what's wrong right. There is a day coming when there will no longer be any rapes, no child abuse, no molestation, no more adultery and the pain that is caused by that, no more children bleeding in the hallways, no more blood on the streets, no more murder, no more violence, no more persecution of Christians. God will put an end to it. And that is relief. Relief for the afflicted. The Bible talks about judgment, but it's not a bad thing. Because judgment is not against us. It's for us. It's our victory over everything we're fighting against. It's our victory over darkness and wickedness and evil. And our victory is coming. There is a day when we will stand on the spiritual shore of the Red Sea and we will witness the victory of God over darkness. And it will be our victory too. And that is comfort worthy of the gospel. Thank you.